So if you're new with us, we've been going through the book of Acts for a while. We actually started uh, back in April of last year, and we went through the first 12 chapters looking at the Jerusalem church, a series we called The Dangerous Church. We took a small intermission, and then we picked up again in chapter 13 a few weeks ago, and we're just pushing through uh, by way of just kind of knowing what's coming. We'll have uh, the two Sundays before Christmas, we'll do something kind of oriented around Christmas, but not disconnected from what we've been doing in Acts. The book of Acts is the story of the good news of Jesus Christ advancing on the world, and Christmas is the story of the God of heaven invading into our world. And so they're very connected. And in, in the book of Acts, ultimately we find the missionary impulse of God being carried out in the same way that the missionary impulse is carried out when Jesus comes. So we'll see some real continuity there. Uh, and then we'll, after that, we're going to keep pushing in the book of Acts. We should probably finish, I don't know, sometime around uh, February. So we will have spent about 10 months total in the book of Acts and uh, feel like it's been a great and profitable time, at least for me. I pray that this time of, of studying the early church and seeing the gospel preached at every corner has helped you. One of our goals in doing this is that as a body and that individually, we would uh, once again fall in love with the gospel, that we wouldn't just go, okay, Jesus died for our sins and rose again and gives us eternal life. Now let's move on to bigger things. Because truthfully, the whole of the Christian life is about understanding that and that truth coming to bear in other areas of life. Uh, one quote that I read this week from C.J. Mahaney, who's a great pastor, said that, that it's not that we learn the gospel and then we move on to more mature things. It's that we come to an ever-increasing understanding of the gospel and what it means to us. And so that's kind of been one of the goals as we've jumped into the book of Acts. So where we've come so far is the church is planted. Uh, there's been a lot of growth. The, the gospel begins to move out from Jerusalem. And we find this guy, the Apostle Paul, and he goes on a missionary journey. He establishes some churches. Then he comes back to Antioch where he was kind of sent from. And they have this controversy come up about what does it require to be saved. And so they go to Jerusalem, all the church leaders meet, and they draft a letter to clarify things. And the letter basically says that the blood of Christ and faith in Him is the only way to be saved, and that's all that's required for salvation. And there's a couple things for the unity and purity of the church that we're going to request of the churches. And so where we find the Apostle Paul now is on his second missionary journey where they're doing essentially two things. One is they're establishing new churches as they arrive in new cities. And two, they're going back through the churches that had been started, and they're delivering this message from the people, from the church leaders there in Jerusalem. Where we find the Apostle Paul today is when he hits Thessalonica. And we're going to look at a tale of two cities today in the first half of Acts 17. Thessalonica and Berea. So if you want to go to Acts chapter 17, verse 1. It says, When they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. So that's the story when they land in Thessalonica. He finds there a synagogue. So the last city we went to, there wasn't really a synagogue. There wasn't really a, a, an established group of Jewish believers or Greeks that had, had converted to worshiping the God of the Bible. But here in Thessalonica, he finds a synagogue. 
Thessalonica was a very wealthy port town on that same highway we talked about last week. There was a Jewish population there. And for three weeks, Paul met every Saturday with the Jewish people and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And his reasoning with them was really around one thing, was that the the Messiah, the Christ, foretold in the Old Testament, would not just come as a conquering king, but he would come and suffer and then rise from the dead. That those things must happen and that Jesus was that man. And so he spends the majority of his time then in the Old Testament arguing from the prophets, I'm sure in passages like Isaiah 53, uh, that Jesus, the suffering servant, would be crucified, that he would die, that he would be beaten and abused for the sins of many and then rise again. And so he's constantly teaching that message and reasoning from the Scriptures with them. He says he meets with them for three weeks, which off the bat tells you that, that he had a better stint than some cities. In some cities, Paul would preach for about a day or two and get punched in the mouth. And so he was able to make it roughly three weeks here uh, without anything of, of interest occurring to him. The message was compelling. Some people believed it. But if you go to chapter 17, verse 3, you'll find, again, the clarity of what Paul is teaching. And we're going to come back to this for an extended period. He's proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And that this Jesus, he is proclaiming, is the Christ. So that's the central message. That's what we preach every Sunday. That Jesus, for our sin, had to suffer and die. And then under the power of God, rose again to give us the promise of eternal life. That's essentially what we say. That's what Paul said. That's what we should say every Sunday. Because we're a church. And Jesus is central. And so every time he meets, that's what he is preaching to them. And some people believed. Things seem to be going okay five verses in, 21 days into his ministry there. But then verse 5, things begin to turn in Thessalonica. It says, the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they dragged, the, but when they dragged Jason and some of the older brothers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house and they are defying Caesar's decree saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. We heard this. The crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postpone and let them Go. So the people in Thessalonica all of a sudden turn. For three weeks, things are going okay. Some people begin to believe, and then the Jewish leaders begin to get a little jealous. And when they do, they go to the marketplace. Uh, the Greek phrase that they would use would be agora. And in fact, I wanted to show you a picture here, but it was real fuzzy and not very useful. The very marketplace that this riot started from has been uncovered there in, in Thessalonica. The funny thing is that you see this ancient uh, ruin of a marketplace that they've dug up, and next to it is a really nice high-rise apartment complex. And it's just the interesting thing that we never see here because none of our buildings are more than about 75 years old generally. Uh, but, so that marketplace is there. You can walk through and see where this thing occurred. That's one of the things that's so important about the book of Acts. This isn't fairy tale. This isn't odd, fancy story. This is history. This is actual record written based off of eyewitness accounts of the events that occurred. And you can go through ancient history and archaeology and all you'll find every time is that the message of the Scripture is confirmed in the places, events, locations, and 
people referenced. And so the, the fight begins there in this marketplace. Now, the thing about Thessalonica that makes them so different is that they were what's considered a free city. Throughout the Roman Empire, most cities had Roman troops stationed there. But Thessalonica was treated differently. It had enjoyed prosperity and had been well behaved and they had stepped out and the Roman government wasn't really even present in the city. And they kind of liked that freedom and they didn't want anything upsetting the apple cart or their material possessions. And the preaching of Jesus was a significant threat to their easy, lazy way of life. And truthfully today, the preaching of Jesus, the receiving of the gospel is a threat to our easy, lazy, prosperous way of life. Because when the gospel comes in, it turns everything upside down. And he begins to show us that the things that we have strived for, the things that we have searched after, the things that we have defined ourselves by are unimportant. And they do nothing for us in any kind of eternal perspective. It's that, the scriptures say that we're like dew, that we're here in the morning, we're gone in the morning, and all of our stuff with us. And so it's a threat, and, and there's no doubt here. And yes, they're proclaiming that Christ is Lord, and if Christ is Lord, then Caesar is not. So they're not really lying when they say the Apostle Paul is teaching things that are unacceptable to the Roman Empire and the Roman government. He is. So they're not lying. They're just jealous and wicked. And so they go there, the riot happens, they go to Jason's house, which is apparently where Paul, Silas, and Timothy are staying. They don't find them there, but Jason's home, and they're going, well, he's aiding and abetting, let's drag him out as well. They drag him before the magistrates, they put them on trial, Jason posts bond and is released. And that's about the end of our stay in Thessalonica, and we shuffle on to Berea, in verse 10. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the Word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea, and the men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. And so he goes about 40 miles southwest to Berea under the cover of nightfall. He has to slide out of town because there are people looking for his head. Paul seems to do that a lot. I don't know if you noticed that. He has two things that happen to him in almost every city he goes to. One of these occur. One, either he's stoned, beat up, arrested, something like that, or he sneaks out just before they do that. Uh, this, this last uh, Monday night, I caught some of the guys at, uh, that were on the way out of Bible study. So I was leaving the elders meeting, going to my car. These guys were headed out of the Bible study. And you always want to go to the meeting after the meeting. That's where life gets interesting. And so they're talking, and a couple of the guys are giving me a hard time. They go, man, all you've been talking about is suffering lately. Feel like every Sunday you come in, you're gonna suffer, you're gonna suffer, you're gonna suffer. I love you and it's true, so I just keep saying it. And also, the book of Acts is full of it. You can't, it's like, what am I supposed to do? This is the material I have, right? The apostle Paul goes there, he tells people Jesus loves him, they hit him in the face and throw rocks at him. And that's the story of the book of Acts. And so today, today, I'm not gonna tell you you're gonna suffer. Deal? Uh, but I am gonna talk to you about the suffering of Jesus here in a minute, because we can't get away from that and call ourselves Christians. And so, 
he slides out of town. He gets to Berea. He says, when we got to Berea, these guys were a little better, a little easier to deal with. Uh, the scripture actually says that they were of more noble character. The Greek word is different, and it gives us a little slightly different meaning. It's, it, it, the Greek word is eugenesis, which you can see the word genetics in there. Actually, the meaning is, is not that they were better people or, or better. They were better. They were well-born. They were a little higher class of folks. They were probably more well-educated. And so for them to hear a new claim, these are somewhat intellectual group of folks. They want to study the Scriptures together. This is curious to them, and they want to learn. And so instead of the immediate response of the uninformed Jewish person going, "Ah, I don't buy it, throw rocks at him, they said, well, let's hear this. Let's study this new claim. Let's, Let's go through the intellectual hoops and see if this is legitimate. And so they begin to talk. Talks with him for a while. Some of them believe. In fact, there's a good number of them believe, which is, which is a difference from the other towns we've been to. Most of the cities that we find the Apostle Paul preaching in, he goes, a few of the Jewish people believe, and then the message goes to the Greeks, and a lot of them believe. That's kind of the pattern that you see play out. Except here, he says, hey, a great number of them, many of them believe, but, but many of them didn't. And he reasoned with them from the Scriptures frequently. Now, I want to point out something about how the Gospel is received. It isn't an intellectual thing that keeps us from believing the message of Christ's death for us. That's not it. It's not that those who are more intelligent become believers. 1 Corinthians kind of tells us the opposite of that in 1 Corinthians 1. It says, look at you guys. You are a ragtag bunch. Not many of you the world would look at and say you're all special but God has loved you. In fact, I find more and more as I look at my own life that God really enjoys saving those that, that are wrecks, that are absolute messes and using them. Read the story of the Bible. Right? Moses, murderer. David, adulterer and a murderer. You can go on. Solomon had at least a hundred wives, which, if not sinful, was absolutely crazy. And sinful. But crazy too. God seems to enjoy taking absolutely wrecked and damaged people and using them. So it's not that, that the intelligent, the smart, the best, and the brightest are the ones that believe. That's, that's not the issue. The gospel isn't stopped by our not grasping it so that the really smart people get believed. Sometimes that, unfortunately, is how we approach evangelism or apologetics, where we're discussing the faith with a friend, right? We, we think that we can reason or argue them into being saved. We think that our wittiness will somehow soften their heart to the gospel. When the reality is, the scripture tells us over and over, that our issue with the gospel is that our hearts are dead and that our eyes are blind. That's what Ephesians tells us. And that for us to be saved, it's not that we need to be educated, it's that the Holy Spirit needs to take that message that's being proclaimed and incline our hearts to receive it. So it doesn't mean we don't share. It doesn't mean we don't reason from the Scriptures. It means we recognize the limitations of that reason and that ultimately a work of God in the Holy Spirit is required to take it from good information and an interesting education about religious studies and convert someone into being a follower of Christ. And so he reasons from the Scriptures with them, not because that is what will save them, but because they must believe in order to be saved. And he must give the Holy Spirit something to work with to convert them. 
Romans 10 says right away, how can they believe if no one preaches? How can someone preach if no one is sent, right? So how is someone going to believe unless they're told? So we, we preach, we explain the gospel as clearly, as compellingly as we can here on Sundays to our friends, to ourselves to remind us. But ultimately, the Holy Spirit has to take that and do something with it. So I don't want you to walk away thinking a lot of them were saved because they reasoned well with them. No, a lot of them were saved because the Holy Spirit took that, softened their heart, and they received the gospel. It's not an education, it's not an academic thing that keeps us from becoming believers. So, as you approach those that you love that have yet to accept the faith, explain it and pray. Louis Perry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, said that evangelism is less about pleading with souls and more about pleading for them. He said, we, 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 we preach the gospel, we explain it clearly, we answer objections, and we pray like crazy. We pray for God and His grace to do a work in someone's heart. And so the battle for the lost souls of those that we love is done, yes, when we share the gospel, but just as much, if not more, when we hit our knees praying, pleading for God's mercy on them. That God would open their eyes and soften their hearts. So he leads them through this journey of examining the Old Testament Scriptures, of seeing that Jesus fits the bill for who the Messiah would be, that He had to suffer and rise again, that that was required. And through that, they believe. For both the rough-and-tumble Jewish group of Thessalonica and the the aristocratic, wealthy, educated Jews in Berea, the need was the same, Christ must die and rise again. And this need is a requirement for everyone. This, this requirement that Christ must die is something that, that we have to look at and go, you know, yeah, for me, that's true. There's no other way for me either. Uh, there's not another way for me to approach God other than through the death and resurrection of Jesus. No matter where I'm at, no matter if I'm slightly rough around the edges or well well-educated, well-born, extend my pinky when I drink, that the need is the same. So what I'd like to do is maybe step off of the story for a second and talk about the necessity of the cross. But why the cross is an absolute essential, why we preach it every Sunday, why the suffering of Jesus cannot be forgotten, marginalized, minimized, pushed to the side, not only in this church, but in our lives. Martin Luther said, for us, it should be as if Jesus died only yesterday, every day. That's the content of Paul's preaching. It's central to everything he says, because to be honest, the gospel, the suffering and death of Christ and his rising again to give us eternal life is at the very core of who we are. It, It defines absent God where we stand. God had to do this if any of us were to be saved because the Scripture says that, that in our sin we were absolutely dead and utterly devoid of anything pleasing before God. Even when we tried hard, even when we did good things, even when we read our Bibles and had good theology, absent Jesus and believing in Him, there's nothing that we can do that would take us one step closer to God. Giving your money away to poor people is good. It will not save you. Attending church is good. It will not save you. Leading a Bible study is good. It will not save you. 
Memorizing Scripture is good. It will not save you. Enrolling in seminary is good. It will not save you. None of those things will do anything to take us one step closer to God because we are absolutely separated and disconnected from Him because of our sin. And so we can be like the Bereans and know the Bible and study it and be absolutely lost. If any of you guys, raise your hand if you have a church background and you've seen a Sunday school class that was the Berean class. Anybody seen that? A few? It's actually not that uncommon that we have a Berean class, which means there are a lot of well-educated studying lost people. That's what the Bereans were. Now, I know that's probably not true of that class. A lot might have got confused because, well, the Bereans are of noble character. Yeah, they were well-born, guys, and they were educated, and they were lost until Paul came and brought the gospel. And even then, most of them were still lost. But they were still well-educated, they still knew their Bibles, and they were still lost. Because this is an imminent danger for us. We're a Bible church, we study the Bible, but the danger is that we would fall in love with the Bible and not Jesus. That we would become like these Berean folks who go, you know, they're, uh, they're of good character. The folks at Tomball Bible, they're, they're nice and they're, they're polite and they drive respectfully, and they, they serve the poor, and they study the Bible, and I go to their Bible studies, and everybody knows so much, but, but do we love Jesus? Is He at the core of everything we do? The root of the separation we experience from God is our sin. We sin, we fall away from God. We're sinners not only by choice, but also by nature. And so even our best efforts to, to overcome our sin are, are somehow mixed with, with bad impulses and inappropriate motivations. We all fall under God's wrath because of our sin. That's the message of Romans 1-3. through 3. And if you go to Romans 3 with me. We're going to look at verse 9 and then verse 20 and talk about those for a second. In verse 9 of Romans 3, he said, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? He's talking to the Jewish people who knew the law, who had been trusted the Scriptures. He said, Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentile alike are all under sin. So everyone under sin. Right? We have all sinned. We are sinners by nature and choice. Everybody, even those that were raised with the Scriptures, even those that grew up in the community of faith, are under sin. And look at verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So this is the deal, and this is the danger, is that you, you grow up in a church culture, or you get embedded in one, and you begin to think that if you just do the right things, if I do my quiet time, if I go to church, if I attend a life group, if I tithe, and whatever list you come up with, if I, if I don't get drunk, if I don't smoke, if I, whatever the list is, that you're good. That, that I've cleaned up, and that's what God wanted. God wanted me to clean up. When the Scripture said, look, you're not going to get saved. You're not going to be declared righteous or not guilty before God by doing the things, by checking the list, because you won't do it well enough. And when you do it, if you succeed, you'll become pride, boastful, and arrogant. Gotcha. So all of us, 
Even the really cleaned up ones, even the really educated ones, even the Bible studying ones, even the ones that can quote scriptures you didn't know exist. You know, guys that can quote like Zephaniah on the drop of a hat. It's just obnoxious. It's really not. <laughs> That's not what does it. And here, here's the thing, as we look at that, and it's very easy for us to get impressed with that, and then to go, oh wow, I wish I could be like that person. And there may be some things that we want to emulate there, but what we've got to step back from and go, what delights the Father? Is it committing verses to memory? Maybe. But not if it isn't done from a heart that's been renewed and changed by trust in Christ and Christ alone. A heart that loves Jesus and wants to know Jesus. And so we study the Scriptures and we study the Bible like crazy around here because we love Jesus and we want to know Jesus and we want to know what Jesus wants for our lives. Not because we want to know more and be smarter. So Christ must die because we are absolutely 100% under God's wrath because of our sin. All of us, Jew or Gentile, moral, immoral, good family, bad family, raised by wolves, the Gettys or the Clampets, were all under sin, deserving of the full weight of God's wrath. But God has chosen to save sinners. And if any of us are to be saved, it will be somehow because God has, has satisfied or stayed His wrath for us and been merciful. This is where Anselm, one of the early church fathers, said it perfectly. He said that because of our sin, we owed to God a debt we could not pay. And it was a debt that only a man should pay, but that it was so great that only God could pay it. And so the answer was, the Son of God, incarnate, the God-man, Jesus being both man and God, going to the cross, taking the penalty for our sin, not only physical death, but shouldering upon Himself the full weight of every sin. Not just generically the sins of the world, your sins in particular, my sins in particular, every wrathful, malicious, lustful, angry thought, all of it, every moment of greed or self-righteousness, All of it, not just the sins of the world generically, your sins. The ones you committed yesterday, the ones you committed this morning, the ones you'll commit tonight. All of them laid upon His shoulders as He approached the cross. So it's not just about His physical death, and we can see things like that when we look at at the Passion of the Christ or, or some of the great artwork that's been done to depict the crucifixion. It's bloody, gory, and nasty. But that doesn't touch the tip of the iceberg of what Jesus endured for us. Not just the physical suffering, but He who knew no sin became sin. That The sins of the world, the sins of my heart were laid upon Him. And that He suffered so that we could be forgiven. And if any of us is ever going to experience eternal joy with God, it will be because of that act and that act alone and us placing our faith in it. So the Scriptures say, and Paul says over and over to everybody, whoever they are, however cleaned up they are, however they know about theology, he says, Christ must die for you. Because there's no other way. And you can get distracted. You can get confused. You can get religious. And it means nothing. So Christ must die for us to be brought near. Romans chapter 3 verse 21 says it this way. 
After telling us we could not be justified by the law by doing good things, he says, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness from God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference for all of sin and fall short of God's glory and are justified freely by His grace through redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And this is how it happened in verse 25. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. And He did this to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies to those who have faith in Jesus. So Jesus takes the weight of our sin. Atonement means that the wrath of God for sin was poured out on Christ. And that He bared that for us. So that now when God looks at us, even at our worst, when we have faith in Christ, we're not under His wrath, but under His mercy. So something bad happens. I don't know the answer of why it happened, but I know it's not the wrath of God. Not if you have trusted in Christ. It is His mercy. And I can't explain that, but the Scriptures tell me you're no longer under wrath if you trust in Christ. But if you have not, even if you memorize Bible verses, you stand under His wrath. So the cross is necessary for everyone. For good people, bad people, the Thessalonians, the Bereans. Pretty easy to look at the mob of the Thessalonians and go, yeah, these guys are lost, but the Bereans, a little harder to spot. I think that's why Billy Graham, in the hate of his ministry, said that he thinks roughly every Sunday morning about a third of the people in the congregation are lost. And so we preach the gospel not only because we know that there'll be outsiders who stumble in here accidentally on a Sunday morning that need to hear Jesus, but because there's probably folks that have been here for years that need it as well. And the reality is that even those of us who have been saved need it because that's how we grow. And we're reminded of Christ's love for us and what His call on our life is. And guys... The, what Billy Graham said there, he, he's not a prophet, but he was much wiser than I am. A lot more experienced than me. I'm inclined to believe that's pretty close to accurate. And as your pastor, I love you too much not to share this, not to be very direct about this. We'll find later in Acts 20, Paul, when he says goodbye to the Ephesian elders, saying, look, I've preached the full counsel of God's word while I was with you, and I am free from your blood. I've given you everything the Scripture says. And so while we are here, while I get the great joy of preaching, we will cover this every time. Because when I stand before God, I want to be free of the judgment of you not responding. And if you sit here today and you go, you know, I, uh, I go to church, I do the church thing, but I don't necessarily, it's not here. Or maybe you're just here for, for show and, and, and you know, to be honest, Monday through Saturday, you look like everyone else and there's nothing that anyone could see that would indicate that the Holy Spirit is active. I, I'm not God. I don't get to judge that. I'm just asking. There's a passage in Matthew 7 that, that we need to wrestle with where 
where Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, some he's talking to some folks about what it is to love God and, and, and enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is what he says in verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in His heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and in Your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew You away from me. And there are moments where we need to wrestle with that. Now, I want to be clear about some things theologically. When we say that, that the sins of the world, all of them, past, present, and future, were laid upon Christ, that when we believe in Him, we are forgiven. Now, that is an exchange that takes place at the moment of faith, and, and we are forgiven for everything. And so someone does not experience the gift of salvation and then lose it because Christ has already done what is necessary to forgive them. And so we're not saying here that someone can once be saved and then lose it. We believe that you are held eternally secure by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not by your own power continuing to believe, but by the work of God within you. Now, There's another thing that the Scriptures teach that we often don't touch about, and we kind of combine the two. There is the doctrine of eternal security, and then there is assurance. So there's two things here. One, everyone who is saved will remain saved by the hand of God holding them. But some of us might wrestle at times to go, am I really saved? Did, did I really trust Christ? There's two things, security and Assurance. You can have assurance. First John is a great place to go if you're wrestling through this question of, is, am I really there? Do, did, I, did I experience that? Did I trust Christ? Did, did I really do it? Or, or did I just say a prayer for fire insurance one Sunday morning and the pastor proclaimed to be saved? First John gives us a few things, but he, he tells us one, that the Spirit's testimony in our lives is that we are the children of God. And so step back and, and pray and say, God, w- would you show me? Would you make it clear to me? Along the lines of that, I, I, would, I would ask you to look back at your life over a period of years and, and look for evidence of the Holy Spirit changing you, growing you, shaping you. But, but there is a possibility, and I want to be honest about this. If you find the Christian life exceedingly difficult, lacking in joy, and undesirable, that it may be that you're just not a Christian. It may be that, that you said a prayer and someone who didn't spend more than 15 seconds with you told you you were saved. And you believed them but you never trusted in Christ. That is a possibility. It may be that you're wrestling just because the Christian life is hard. And, and so I don't want anyone that ought to be assured of their salvation to question it, but at the same point today, we can't give assurance to those who ought not be assured. The teaching of Scripture over and over again is this one single thing, that none of what you could do will bring you close to God. It is by the blood of Christ alone. 
And so here is the, the point to examine as we worship today, as we sing, if you need to sit and pray, if you need to stand and sing, but the thing that needs to be in your mind at the forefront is have I trusted in Jesus' blood alone? Or am I still trying to do it? Do I say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I'm, I'm still going to call the shots. I'm still going to do the right things. I'm still going to earn His love. Or is it Jesus only? And if you have any claim on which God should forgive you other than the blood of Christ, other than His suffering and rising again for your sin, what I want to encourage you to do is to catch me or one of the elders as we sing. And guys, I know this isn't planned, but as we sing, if I could ask the elders to just be available on the front row. If you've got anything else you're going with, not that, whether it's a need to, to pray with someone to seek some spiritual guidance, maybe you're dealing with something in your family or in your workplace that you just need prayer and support for. We want to invite you to do that as we sing this morning. But I want to be crystal clear that Christ must suffer and die and be risen again. Because if He hadn't, none of us would have any claim of eternity with God. That is the sole basis for who we are before God and our relationship with Him. And it should shape every element of life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that You... Lord, that in Your infinite love for us, You looked at us wicked and sinful and disobedient and rebellious. And you sent your only beloved Son who had never sinned, who knew no sin, and He humbled Himself and submitted Himself to death even on a cross. And more than the physical reality, bearing up the full weight of our sin, experiencing your wrath poured out on Him, though He had done nothing to deserve it, so that we might become your children, so that as He took our sin through faith, we could be given His righteousness, His right standing before You. So that when You look at us through the blood of Christ and our faith in Him, You don't see our sin, You see His righteousness. Even at our worst, that You see the righteousness of Christ. And I thank You for that today. Because Lord, if You saw me or any of us through our own lens, we would still be under Your wrath. But Through the blood of Your Son, we're forgiven and redeemed and we're brought into the family. Lord, I would pray today particularly for those who have done the religious things, they've attended church, they've learned their Bibles, but they have not trusted Your Son. They've been cleaned up and they've played the religious game, but they haven't been changed. And Lord, I don't know who they are. I don't stand here to make those judgments. But Father, I do know that Your Spirit knows without without any question. Father, I pray that those who meet that description today would not be able to leave here without Your Spirit completely revolutionizing their life and turning their hearts away from themselves and trying to be righteous on their own and trusting fully in Your Son, that You would bring them to a point of brokenness and humility before You so that they might receive forgiveness and grace. I pray that for all of us, You would over and over again, remind us that we stand before You only through the blood of Your Son and His goodness, not our own, so that we might be gracious and loving to others. And on this Sunday after Thanksgiving, Lord, there is nothing we could be more thankful for than Your Son and all that He means for us. We pray that this time of worship would be pleasing to You, that it would rightly respond to You.
that your son would be lifted up and that you would take joy in this. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen.